podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Charles Tirrett. Pros in effortless menwear, whether you need a casual weekend look or sharp tailoring. It's four wins from four in England's brave new era. This time they've chased down 378 with seven wickets remaining to level the series against India. Ben Stokes said at the end of the game that a bit of him wanted to see India set England 450 to see how they'd get on. We are living in different times. I'm Yaz Rana and with me in the studio today is the editor-in-chief of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, and the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. As well as the men's test at Edgebaston, we've got the women's test at Taunton to talk about, a couple of England white ball squads that have been named, and we'll chat a bit about the ECB's treatment of the T20 blast. But first, let's go to Mark Butcher to hear what he makes of this extremely fun new era of English test cricket. Butch, when India left England 378 to win, what were you thinking at the time? No chance. Even after the last three weeks? Yeah, I thought that despite all of that, that amount of runs, that attack, the way that the pitch played on the, on the fourth day, on the Monday, obviously you think back to the delivery, they got Kohli, Pajara had a couple that ran along the deck, um, thought the, the, you know, that the rough would come into play more for Judasia, but he, they refused to bowl him from the right end. So, um, you know, that, that was sort of negated in the end. But you just thought, you know, I mean, this is one of the problems about sort of knowing the history of the game or having played the game is that kind of stuff like that just never happens. So, <laughs> so you just kind of like everything you know um, about, uh, about test match cricket and, you know, the Indian bowling attack and, and, and everything else kind of tells you that that shouldn't be possible. And it certainly shouldn't be possible um, in a manner uh, whereby there was, there was so little jeopardy in it whatsoever. You know, after the after that opening stand, then it, we all just went, all right, it's over. It's done. They've got it down below 300. Uh, and, you know, and India are kind of a bit stuck for, for ideas. Um, uh, and even with, even withstanding the sort of the, the chaos of that little period just prior to tea and, uh, and afterwards on, on day four, uh, as soon as Johnny and... and Joe got together, it was just serenity. I mean, India, India didn't bowl particularly well, uh, it has to be said. They had a reverse swinging ball and, and kind of went against all of the, the rules of reverse swing, i.e. after the initial attempt to kind of knock people over when they first get to the crease, you then go back to bowling a sort of, you know, the top of off stump channel line and the odd ball will go straight and the odd ball will dart back in. And they kind of got very, very preoccupied with bowling straight and the guys just kept knocking them for one. Um, and, and it was it was incredible. It was at, it was it was so incredible. It ended up being dull. How's about that? <laughs> I didn't find it dull. This isn't my point. This is a point uh, made by someone I play cricket with, and he said that up until about ten years ago, knocking it around in the middle overs of an ODI was the done thing to do. Until suddenly, it wasn't. Is this what we're seeing now with Test cricket? I mean, the transformation of Alex Lees is, is just crazy, right? In the Caribbean, he couldn't hit it off the square 
And then I think he told Sky after day four that the left-handers were tasked with attacking Jadeja, you know, one of the best spin bowlers in the world. It came down the wicket, third ball to Shami to hit him through mid-wicket. Modern players just have so many shots, even someone who initially looked like a bit of a blocker. Is this the way, do you think, that the test game is going to go? Well, it's the way England are going to go, for sure. I mean, whether whether everybody else jumps on the on the bandwagon and follows them remains to be seen. But um, England have, have decided... They've just kind of decided to do away with all of the norms of Test match cricket. I was reading, um, I was reading Bish and in uh, in, in our rivals, ESPN and Crick Info, about sort of the you know they basically asked why why do we why do we do this? And if the answer comes back well because that's the way it's always been done, then they throw it out and do something else, you know. Um, and I love that. I mean, that's just it's fantastic. There's so much there's so much sort of crap around. Um, you know the the norms and the accepted realities of Test match cricket that were that were literally just done because they'd always been done before, and no one had ever questioned it before. So, um, you know, fabulous. It's, it, it, it's you, you're kind of waiting. I mean, we we just thought when India were batting in that third innings and the lead was already 130 at the change that this is where it comes unstuck, right? India um, then do whatever they have to do in order to get to put it put it away, put it out of sight. You know. And 378 in the end, um, you know, they, they would have preferred it to be 450. Uh, you know, and a word on England and on the way that England sort of managed somehow um, to, to sort of knock them over for the, for the lowest score in the game third time round when they had a 130-run lead is something that deserves its own little podcast, I think. Um, uh, and so, so they left, you know, they, they left the door slightly ajar, didn't they, India? Or, it, you know, England forced them to leave the door slightly ajar and then they just barged through it with all of the, um, with all the politeness of Boris Johnson on his way to the buffet table. <laughs> just, just on the India collapse in the third innings, that's, that's the second or arguably third time this summer that England have kind of got back into a game because of the opposition collapsing a little bit and letting them off the hook in the third innings. India just weren't very ruthless. They didn't, they didn't really look like they, they had a clear plan of what they wanted. There were quite, quite a few loose shots, but at the same time, they weren't particularly attacking at the same time. So it, it wasn't that clear what India were, were trying to do. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, and some of that, I think, is, is potentially because of the, the fear of what England might be able to do in the last innings. Now, over the course of three, three, three test matches prior to that, all of a sudden... You've got the opposition thinking, how, um, when is far enough? You know, how, how far is far enough ahead? Uh, and therefore, you're absolutely right. They played, they played in a manner which kind of like suggested they didn't know what to do. They didn't know whether to come out there and, and be 130 runs ahead and do a Michael Slater and just go, right, that's it. We're just going to batter you out of the game. Um, we're going to do it fast. We're going to do it brutally. And we're going to get us so far ahead, leave ourselves so much time in the game to bowl you out that you've got no chance. So they didn't come out and do that. I mean, they might have done had Rohit and Rahul been their, their two opening batters, but that, you know, unfortunately for them, that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. Mm. Um, and then, and then even Rishabh Pant kind of like seemed to be for some reason he just he, he decided he wasn't going to attack Jack Leach um, on, uh, on on Monday, and he kind of let him bowl and he let him bowl, and in the end, instead of you know instead of running down and bashing him back over his head, which is the way he's been unbelievably successful against Leach. You think all the way back to Chennai on those on those turners and, uh, and things. Um, you know, he then he then goes for the reverse sweep, out of the rough, poor option, and and Joe Root takes a brilliant catch. Um, and all of the while that this is going on, you're thinking to yourself, well, they're not far enough ahead yet. They're not far enough ahead. 
Um, but the, the, in the back of your mind, you're still thinking, it's a fifth day pitch, for goodness sake. We've already seen variable bounce. They've got Shami, they've got Bumrah. Um, you know, the, the two support seamers are perhaps not, well, not perhaps, they're just not in that sort of class. And, and that, that showed in the final innings. Jadeja, um, you know, should have been a handful. You get to, with, with, your, with your job at Sky, you get to speak to the England players before and after each day's play. Do you get a vibe off them that's just different to any team you've seen before, just in how relaxed they are? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the great things is, I mean, we always used to, this is going back a long time ago when, when I was still playing. You know, we always used to look in envy at sort of the Aussies rocking up in their flip-flops um, from, a, from a pool session, sort of half an hour before the start of play. And we'd already been out there sweating in the Brisbane heat for an hour, doing our warm-ups and ministry of silly walks nonsense. And we'd kind of look at them rocking up and, and then they'd sort of look at ourselves and go, oh my God, you know, what are we doing? why are we doing this? Why are we putting ourselves through this pain and, you know, already losing gallons of, of fluid in the, in the Brisbane heat? And these blokes just rock up stick their whites on, come out and give us a good hiding and then, and then go back to the pub, you know. <laughs> and England have very much got that vibe about them. Uh, you know, the, the guys, the, unfortunately, some of the guys have to turn up early to do interviews with us before we go on air. But the rest of the team, they don't, we don't see them. We don't see them until gone 10 o'clock. Mm. Um, and when they do, they're kicking a football around. If, if, if you want to have a hit, you have a hit. If you want to have a bowl, you have a bowl. You know, it's, it's very, very relaxed. Um, and, the, and the players, are, are, they are enjoying themselves to the nth degree. They're absolutely loving um, the management style. They're loving turning up to work in the morning. Uh, and they're loving the sort of the freedom that they're having to, to, um, to do it their way, I think. And that's, that's, that's been unbelievably, um, unbelievably important. And it has, it has made an incredible difference. And just on best, though, I thought those 200s, felt almost more sustainable than what we saw against New Zealand. Really controlled. He rode the waves of pressure in both innings. It's a, it's a freakish run of form. It is, yeah. I mean, we, we, did, a, we did quite a long piece. It started off as a conversation about Johnny Bairstow and, how, and just how brilliantly he, he's picking length at the moment. Um, you know, using, using Hawkeye. Literally anything that was in a, in a good length, in the sort of the red zone or whatever, he defended or left. And his defence has looked so solid. You know, absolutely rock solid in defence. His, his lining up of the ball and off stump, um, knowing knowing what to leave, um, has been has been immaculate as well. I mean, it's, it's tempting to think that he just he's gone out there and just smashed the ball, but he hasn't. Um, and every time they missed, whether short of that that red zone or full of that red zone, if it was full of it, it went back over their head or or hit the extra cover fence before anybody moved. If it was short of it, it's a short arm jab or it's pulled or it's cut. Incidentally, he's he's now taking a sort of middle and leg guard instead of the middle and off one that he was he was taking before. I mean, far <laughs> be it from me. Um, you know, and so so at the minute it's very very simple. Good ball, good ball, defend, bad ball, hit for four, and he hasn't missed. He just hasn't missed for weeks, um, and it's been it's been astonishing to see. And then of course you've got his great mate at the other end, Joe, who's just. It's just sublime. I mean, it's just so, we're so lucky to be able to see somebody um, as good as that uh, make the game look so, so easy and do it beautifully as well. You know, I mean, which is not to say that Johnny Bairstow is not, not fun to watch or anything like that, but there's a kind of, there's a classicism about Joe Root. There's, a, there's an ease, there's a grace, all of the things that, you know, that, you know there's artistry about what he does. 
um, and long may it continue. Awesome. Cheers for your time, Butch. Chat to you next week. Phil, Joe Root's good at batting and he's also a really nice man as well. Yeah, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how, how he, he he walks that line. You don't see it with many. You, the, the, the great players always have uh, a gargantuan ego, even if they are well-practiced at suppressing it. But with him, he somehow seems to fa- find find this balance of being ordinary self-aware normal and a genius I don't know how you do that and that interview that he gave after the game yesterday so we're recording the, the morning after the latest freak and he gave such did you see it Joe it was so, so nice it was it, so lovely I just wanted to give him a big hug yeah which I have done over the last few months but more kind of that was a sympathetic hug this was just because he's just so nice I don't know if they meant it or not but Warden Hussein ended up Sledging him. Yeah, slightly <laughs> sledging him. But I think they only did it because he'd he'd given a couple of indications that he was up for that kind of uh, suggestion that things are better now because he's no longer in charge. And I struggle to think of any other top, top, top class cricketer who would go with it with that kind of warmth and generosity of spirit. But the bloke has got it. And he said, he said something like, yeah you know, now we've got someone who knows what they're doing in charge. It's so much better. And then he, you know, he gave a wink to, and he threw a few garlands out to the audience, you know, and, and to have, to have that, that response straight after his latest masterpiece, um, another one, another absolute masterwork. I don't know how he does it really. It usually takes England captains about 10 years to get to that point, to be able to kind of laugh at themselves. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and if Root's, ever. Yeah, if ever, if ever. And Root's done it in about three weeks. But yeah. it does does help when you're the best batter on the planet, right? The latest IC rankings were updated today and Root's ICC batting rating is down the top 20 of all time. That's Feels about right, pretty, isn't it? Pretty phenomenal, yeah, absolutely. The, the, just on Root, there, there was that stat that came through about dot ball percentage through the history of the game. And you had a couple of, you know, outlandish hitters in there in Gale and Saywag, I think KP and maybe Hayden? Joe? I think Hayden and Bradman. Hayden, perhaps. And and Bradman. And then Joe. Uh, and yet, he's a more complete player than the first four. He's not quite as complete a player as the last one. <laughs> but then no one ever will be. Uh, but we're, we're having to now talk about him, not just in the context of what's happened in the last couple of years, but what's happened in the last couple of centuries. That's where we're now having to talk about this player. Uh, he always resonates such joy and humanity, I think, when he bats. And I know that sounds pretentious, but that's how I feel. There's, there's, a, there's a, a warmth to everything that he does when he bats. Um, even, the, even the really good players, it can look like an intense kind of struggle or it can look like you're, you're kind of showing, showing off a bit, you know, when you're on top. Root doesn't have any of that. He doesn't have any of that arrogance. Um, he doesn't have any of that kind of self-insulation either that you sometimes get with the really good players. It's like they're playing their own game. They're getting their runs and whatever happens elsewhere happens. You don't get any of that with him. He's an open-hearted cricketer. He's obviously a, a complete joy to watch. Um, but you think back as well to how he reacted to Ollie Pope's 100 at Trent Bridge. you know. And I know it became a bit of a thing that Sky built on, but you know... He was celebrating just, just along with the lad. And I know this sounds schmaltzy, but for him to have gone from, from being in, in the doldrums and lugging this, this mess along with him for a year or two 
to suddenly being able just to let it all fall away, that is an extraordinary feat, I think. And as Rob Key said quite rightly when he came in charge, only, hi- only history can do justice to what Joe Root did when he was captain as a batter. And now he's almost taking it to another level. 400s in five games, if you, if you count the series in isolation. Obviously, player of the series. Got player of the series against New Zealand as well. Gets player of the series basically everywhere he goes. 400s in five tests. First time since Compton in 1950-something or other against India. Um, extraordinary. I'm really Amazing. glad we're having this conversation because quite often when Rui gets 100, we just kind of go, we just shrug our shoulders. Yeah, it happens a lot. When Jimmy Anderson takes to five, we kind of shrug our shoulders. And also we'll talk about him later. But I was thinking during this test match, kind of the juxtaposition of him finding it so easy on the fourth and fifth days. He, he genuinely didn't give a chance. And with, with Coley, who... Uh, has has now gone to what two and a half years without scoring the international hundred, which kind of shows it. Done a viral tweet, have you, we? Yes. Yeah, just just one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my my tweet was basically uh, in November 2019. Coley had 27 test hundreds. Root had 16. Now Coley still has 27 hundreds, but Root has 28. Um, Easy shot, but, isn't it? Really, yeah, yeah, that'll get you a thousand yeah, likes immediately. Absolutely, and the rest, um, Joe. Check it out. <laughs> it's so hard, even for the best players, to maintain that. And Root just hasn't maintained that. He's gone to another level. And in the all-time list of run scorers and century makers, Root really is now standing up with the very best of them. It's not just is he is he one of those greats. It's like he's properly properly up there. And especially in this era and this era of batting in England, Root is doing something that no one else has, has really done in English cricket, at least for 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 decades and decades and decades. Watching him yesterday, I was trying to think: Have I ever seen in my cricket watching life seen a batter make Test cricket look so easy? I think I. One day cricket is a bit different because you, you look at watch Just Butler now, for instance, or Virat Kohli when he was at his peak. You could just churn out run after run after run in that, and and it didn't feel like you know it is a, it is a batter's game. Whereas in Test cricket, even when players have done phenomenally well and gone on these runs, I don't think I've ever seen anyone look quite so comfortable. I mean, you look at the strike rate he's scoring at, which is obviously a clear indicator. Um, it it just looks a, a, an incredibly simple game to him, and this is also. You've got to remember, he's been playing against the best sides in this period of time. It's not like England have had a a bit of the schedule where you get to play the sides ranked six, seven, eight. These are the these are the best sides in the world that he's played up against. And fair enough, he didn't get the big runs in Australia that we hoped he would do, but he still had good series. Really, he still had decent series, uh, all things considered. Um, it's it's funny to think we we kept saying, well, even though the captaincy was uh, was obviously a struggle, it seemed to be bringing the best out of him as a batter. Well, actually. Maybe it was holding him back a little bit. He has he has gone up another level since, um, and he's clearly enjoying himself uh, more than I've ever seen him enjoy himself as a, as a Test cricketer, certainly. Uh, and it's just so nice to watch after after these last few well eighteen months of kind of miserable fare. Mm. Phil, by focusing so much on the new captain and new coach, do we almost lose just how ridiculous Root and Bairstow's form is at the moment. Both average literally more than 100 this summer. Bairstow is doing so at a strike rate of more than 100. Uh, their partnership in the fourth innings was England's highest in the fourth innings win ever by miles. On Bairstow, can you make sense of this revival? Because there's been a bit of Bairstow revisionism recently. He was out of the runs for ages in Test cricket, and now he's putting something together that is comparable to what Root has over the last... 18 months. Also, Phil, just remind us, did you pick him in your first test of the summer? I, can't. I, I wanted to see some Red Bull runs, back. <laughs> well, now you have. Well, I mean, I mean he, he, did, he did fail for three, three knocks, didn't he? You, you just sort of forget that in the context of it. And you know, he wasn't really under pressure, clearly because 
England are not going to drop players anyway. There's no not such for thing. years. Yeah, yeah. There's no such thing as, <laughs> as dropping players anymore. Uh, but yeah, there were people saying going into that fourth knock of the summer after two blobs and a and a sixteen, I think he made. Uh, the the kind of was due. He was due a few. Um, I can't answer it. I, I, just, I just can't. Um, he's always been a streaky player. Twenty sixteen was a was a year long streak. Um, I spoke to a couple of people who were in the dressing room, and uh, they said it's been difficult for him. Been difficult for everybody. Australia always, you know, opens up those sores. Um, and they become running sores across a long period of time. And obviously, Besto wasn't in the side in the first half of the Ashes. And it had become difficult for everybody. Uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit, but, but Besto was, was in a position where he was, on the one hand, a World Cup winner, on the one hand, a white ball gun, on the one hand, an IPL stalwart. And then on the other, a kind of drinks carrier on the periphery of the test team, despite having made some significant contributions in the test team. And for a character like Johnny Bairstow, that, that's going to be difficult. It's going to be, he's going to feel isolated in effect. But one of Stokes's master strokes is that he's come in and said, you're one of my main men. You're a, you're a senior player now. And with, a, with senior status, that confers uh, expectations to, to, to deliver, but also to carry yourself in a certain way. And that's clearly what he's been crying out for. He's been crying out for respect within the test match setup. Root acknowledged, again, in that marvellous interview, yeah, well, you can probably blame me for that because he was a bit in and out of the side when I was skipper. Uh, well, um, in, in the Stokes era, he has said to him, you know, there's no better player at number five than you. You're, you are my man. And... A character like Bairstow needs that, and now he's got that. That can't begin to explain how you can do what, what he's done. Um, they, they kept talking about not messing with form. It's a good line. It's a cliche. It's a dressing room cliche. It's the kind of thing that grown-ups say, you know, as if like club cricketers like us could ever say, don't mess with form and say it with a straight face. But, you know, the big boys say that sort of stuff. And and, and what's happened with Bairstow, and this is, this is one of the things that, I'm always confused and bewildered by how this happens in cricket because, you know, I'm a club cricketer and nothing more than that. But when you are, when the force is with you, if you like, all the things go your way, don't they? All the things go your way. So the inside edges never go onto the stumps. The catches never go to hand. The, 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 the flails and the plays and misses never really, never connect. The, the top edges always sail with the wind. They never go against it. All of those kinds of things play out. And I'm not beginning, I'm not suggesting for a second that to denigrate what's been off the charts stuff. Memorable forever. We'll talk about this when we're old. This, this month and Johnny Bairstow's six months. But everything that could have gone, gone his way has gone his way. He was flighty at Trent Bridge to begin with, for example. He was. So, those first dozen balls, I was yeah. like, I think he's going to get out any... It was, yeah. like he was going to get out every ball at that first innings. Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, a little bit in the game just gone as well, you know, in the first innings. And, and, and yet comes out with two hundreds, you know, one of them unbeaten. So, look, logic, rationale, none of it, none of it stacks up anymore. I, I think the, the concept of form is really interesting when we're trying to get our head around 
Baz Ball and everything we've seen over the last month and what it might look like going forward. Because I think we can put separate Root from this because he's just on a different plane. But Bairstow is in unbelievable nick. Now, has it all? is it all like a, just a perfect scenario that this has happened when we have two players in unbelievable form and therefore can capitalise on the way that England want to play? Or is the way that England want to play creating this form in, in Bairstow? And to extend that, what happens when players aren't in form and can you play in this way? So, you know, Bairstow can't continue in this vein. Will he still come out playing like this when he's got three or four single-figure scores in a row? Is, is that the right thing to do? Is it possible? Maybe it is literally the best thing for him to do to get himself back into form, but it's just so alien to how we've understood Test cricket and getting your head down and, and working your way through the difficult periods. And I spoke to Mark Rambrakash for his latest column in Wisdom Cricket Monthly, and uh, look, he's absolutely absorbed and enthralled by what we've seen, like everyone else is. But there is also clearly a sense of unease there, that this is not how you do it. This is not how he learned the game. This is not how he played the game. There might even, and this is not what he said, there might even be a, a tinge of envy that, well, if I played with that kind of freedom, well, maybe what, what could I have done? Have we all been doing this wrong, basically? And we're crossing eras, clearly. No one was playing like this, even in white ball cricket at the time that Rampercash was playing. Um, but it really has kind of reconfigured the whole way that you look at how you should go out there and perform. The question is how well you can stick to it when things aren't working. And Crawley was a good example in mm. that second inning. I was going to say that. In that he played beautifully. Uh, he played his shots, but he also played much more judiciously outside off stump as well. That seemed to be a good a good balance that he struck there. But there are going to be casualties along the way. There, there have to be. I mean, I, I look ahead to South Africa. I can't see England winning all the matches in that series playing this way. I think they'll win the series. I think they'll do it in style. But I'm expecting a game where it all just goes wrong at some stage. It would be remarkable if it doesn't. Mm. For, I mean, for all the talk about the new approach, it, it does just help having two guys average 100. And there have been people saying this isn't sustainable. And they're right. But I think that's more because it's the same group of players who won 1-17 in 17 before that. If you go through the 11, Joe, you're right. There, there are a lot of players who are still yet to really establish them themselves in, in test cricket. All the big structural problems we spent a whole winter talking about of why England don't produce... Test cricketers, they they still they still kind of exist, and I, and I wonder I wonder as well if a big part of their success so far is actually just teams not really knowing what to do when they come up against it, both with bat and ball. So the fear was kind of visible, wasn't it, in India in that fourth innings? That there is no way they would have been as cautious uh, if England hadn't done what they'd done to New Zealand earlier. They'd have, played, I think, they'd come at, at them in a completely different way. Yeah, but it, it, it's in the third innings as well. So in in. England's win at Trent Bridge in particular in the New Zealand series and, and here, I think in both cases, the opposition haven't really known what to do in terms of setting England a target. And one of the big reasons why England are in the game is because of these weird collapses where I think England bowled fine in the third innings, but I don't think they were brilliant. And then that's what kind of kept them in the game. If, if and India... Stokes flaunted this this thing in the interviews after after the, the India game. He said this, that teams are not going to know how to approach that third innings. And the conventions have kind of gone out the window. Um, just a word, a tiny word of caution. I, I, I don't want them to get too bullshy, right? You know, when Stokes is saying, well, a part of me wanted just to set him 450, see how... I know what he's saying, and it's great, but cricket does come back and bite you on the arse. Um, 
the flip side of that point is that they kind of want to be bitten on the arse as well. It's just weird. You know, McCullum saying, we want to we keep pushing it until we find where the line is and we want to go past that line and, and only then will we know where our limitations are. So we almost want to, to balls it up in order to know how far we can go. Um, but yeah, just, just, just be a wee bit careful. You know, they're obviously riding this extraordinary wave at the moment, but just be a tiny bit careful. Incidentally, talking about players being absolutely banging form, playing and, and, and getting it, the one slight, not question mark, because it's not that, but the one who hasn't got the balance, right, is the captain himself, who I think, incidentally, on the pitch has been marvellous, by the way. Uh, having having seen, seen it live at Leeds in particular and watched it as closely as I could, I think he's an extraordinarily good on-field skipper. But with the bat, he's not got that balance right just yet. He got lucky at Lords against New Zealand when he splayed his stumps against the Grand Homme. And obviously he's got caught mid-off a couple of times. Um, this comes back to what I was saying about form, though. And like, I know he's played some brilliant knocks this summer that obviously he smashed Worcester around and he played the knock at Trent Bridge. But is he actually in good enough form right. to get away with the way he wants to play at the moment? And the impression is not really. Because even he... he Trent Bridge aside, where he was actually quite controlled whilst also being aggressive, he's been streaky in that. Even in his mini knocks and his cameos, mm. he's been quite streaky. I mean, mm. Obviously, he got dropped the ball before he got caught by Boomer uh, Edgebaston. It it looks like he's forcing the issue in a way that Bairstow and Root aren't quite striving for something that isn't quite there at the yeah, moment. Yeah, indeed, indeed. It, Root obviously is separate to it to all these conversations. Um, Bairstow is playing a kind of ultra Bairstow role and he's doing it every week but he's but he's always been a counter puncher by nature Stokes is a more complete player technically at least than Bairstow and temperamentally at least and yet he's trying he's there is he's playing outside of himself a bit too much I think at the moment uh, but then I had this conversation late on Friday night on Saturday night with some mates and and my instinct is, well, he'll find the line. He'll find his own personal way of doing it. And it's just a case of trialing this thing and, and finding wh- where, the, where the point is. I think his, his approach when he was in Bairstow's slipstream at Trent Bridge, when he was 70-odd not out, a run a ball, having not really played a shot, is seem, I would hope that that's a more accurate model going forward than the kind of skittish versions that we've seen elsewhere. But again, we, we'll have to wait and see. He's also got a lot on his plate as well. And he also took four for 30 to blow, blow that innings out of the water as well on, on day, day four. On our daily video pods, Roy Dollard made the point after day three that you would never have thought this when he got appointed. But Stokes is almost more important now as, as a captain than the player, which is, which is just which bizarre. Going back to the third innings problem, I think teams have been muddled. But why is it, why is it confusing? Surely you just should just... Bat normally and score as many runs as possible. <laughs> what 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 is there else to really think about? Like you, you know you You're know right. no, you've you know it. you know that England <laughs> you know that England are just going to have a go at whatever. So like I don't I, I I actually think that's the thing that's most unsustainable about this England approach is that they have been I think quite fortunate with how much teams have let them get back in the game, and I don't think. The way they've got back into the game in the third innings, it has got that much to do with how they've bowled, I think. Joe Root was, during that really good interview, he talked about England bowling short at the tail-enders because that's something they've done badly a lot over the last few years. Um, and he basically said bowling short to tail-enders is like bowling the top of off-stump to 
good players in that you can do that badly. And he basically said England did that well in the third innings. And that that is that is probably true. But I don't think that that is the reason why India completely collapsed. No, I. Th- but I think in terms of that, what sides are doing in the third innings, I think you usually get to a point where India were, where they had a substantial lead and you just, at that point, you think we've probably got enough. We'll just hit out from here because everything else is sort of a bonus. And I think with this England team, you don't get to that point of feeling safe and then just being able to play freely. So actually in that second innings, Jadeja played quite conservatively given the way we know he can play. Um, the same with Thakur. So he, what, four off 26 balls? I mean, we saw what he did at the Oval last summer. At that point, they should have really been taking on the England attack. Instead, they went within themselves thinking, we actually need to get our head down and keep going for a bit longer here because who knows what's enough? And to be honest, that question I was thinking yesterday, you know, there were three down for 378. How many could they have got? Yeah. 450, <laughs> 500? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, that, I think it's that kind of, I think I can see there is that impact on the way sides play. But soon enough sides will shift as well and, and they'll have, they'll have start to start playing the same yeah and they'll have to shift their tactics wholesale as well i mean if you're watching this and you're dean elgar for example you're thinking right well we, we, we don't want england chasing but then that means what you you win the toss at the oval and you say mm, we'll have a bowl <laughs> when, when, when the sun's beating down so it's going to spook them just as it spooked the two the two big teams the two very very good big teams that they've already played this year uh, it's just upending the rules. I think yeah. Dean Elgar's going to race to a 30-ball 50 in the first, first morning in the <laughs> yeah. series. Got to get ahead of the game. Yeah, I think in, in some ways people aren't giving enough credit to the thought that's going behind it. So he's England are just playing attackingly. But actually, I think that's very true. But look, with Alex Lees, for example, he gave an interview with Sky and he said his job was to, uh, as, as one of the left-handers, they were told to attack Jadeja in the way they were attacking the, the seamers. Very, very quickly, India went from four slips to two slips and there were gaps in the field and England could actually score runs still fairly easily. So there, there is there is real logic behind England's attacking. It's not all out attack. It's, it's they, To be honest, as you're right, with, with the exception of Stokes, probably, they are picking their moments when to go. And, and Root and Bairstow did as well. Yeah. It, and if they can develop an opening partnership with a bit of light and shade that, all right, it's never going to be Cook and Strauss, obviously, but that can do that kind of damage which was considered and rational and technically sound on both sides, then that is sort of the final piece of the jigsaw, really. Obviously, there are, you know, players who are not world-class in certain positions. There are players who are kind of water carriers in certain positions, sure. But if they can get an opening pair that can, that can do the job of what an opening pair is meant to do, then that becomes a formidable cricket team, a really, really formidable cricket team. It's funny, isn't it? Lee's averaging 26 after seven tests. We'd usually be sitting around this table talking about, oh, maybe he's got a couple more tests left. Actually, I feel very positive about his England future. And that's as much because he's got out for a couple of 30s where he's looked really good, I think. And also that he's set up two magnificent wins. I think you can make an argument that if he hadn't played those knocks, then England probably wouldn't have won those games. And and that's certainly the point Root was making after the game yesterday. Yeah, I think of all all of the developments in this the individual developments. I think the emergence of Potts is very significant, and I think, I think the 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 the, the kind of the, the about face change of of Alex Lee's is is potentially very significant for this mm. team, which is uh, a sentence I never thought I'd be saying <laughs> a couple of months ago. Um, James Anderson's good, isn't he? Five or sixty in the first innings when India scored uh, four hundred and fifteen. He turns forty this month. 
Um, England were very good, Joe, but India didn't really help themselves, right? Not picking Ashwin. I know we spent most of the last summer talking about that. Uh, the third innings performance. Then in the field, they were really sloppy, I thought. Pajara dropped catch with Bairstow. But also they had that, a couple of times, they did that really village thing where a player doesn't dive to cut the ball off. They just kind of follow it to the boundary and Kolu getting very angry about that. And then Siraj and Thakur were way off it in the second innings. And now they've lost three away games in a, in a row, all uh, opposition chasing down a decent target with seven wickets left and scoring quite freely. So for a team that looked like they could become one of the all-time great teams last summer, potentially, they've actually they've actually gone backwards a fair bit. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't forget uh, Rahul and Rohit were the absolute bedrock of, of what felt like a series win last summer, I suppose. In, its, in isolation, it was a series win. Um, so th- those were huge losses. Um, Shubman Gill is, you know, fabulous to watch and is clearly going to be a very, very good test cricketer. But in these conditions, he is a way, way down from those two. Um, and again, Pujara, you know, I know he got a second innings half century, but he's not, he- he's not got the well, the light and shade that Phil talks about. He's not going to hurt you. So even when he was in, he's a frustration, but he didn't feel like he was going to kind of turn the game. But I was expecting India to lose this test because just you know that crap word momentum but it's so hard for sides as England well know turning up in a foreign country without much practice and and just playing a test match but I think we saw that with Siraj and Thakur I think that looked like kind of lack of match practice but you're right there were some oddly un-Indian things like the frailties and the fielding Um, it seemed like they, they lacked a little bit of that energy that bite obviously not in Kohli's case he was snapping all over the place but I don't know if that's the fact that he's not captain or whether that was maybe some intimidation on the part of England that suddenly that balance had been redressed slightly. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't really the India you would expect to see. But again, I, I think on balance that that should be more due to England's... We should give more credit to England for that than we should criticise India because overall it was, a, it was a brilliant test match. Yeah, I guess that one moment when you felt like this is this is the India of 2021 was when they took those three wickets for two runs in the fourth innings. And Kohli, despite the fact he's not captain, he wasn't bowling, he didn't take a catch, felt like he was central to it. And it felt like Kohli team of last year where as soon as they, they sensed they could, they could really seize a moment in the game, they did. And actually, I think they lost the momentum, bizarrely, because of the, the two botched reviews. Like, yeah. Like it, was, yeah. it, was, it gave the... Because the, the crowd was basically 50-50 England supporters, Indian supporters. And that was the moment where the England fans had something to seize upon themselves. And it kind of felt like India had lost a little bit of momentum in a weird way. Rishabh Pant is very good, Phil. Um, he's now up to number five in the bat- batting rankings of the world. He averages nearly 45 in test cricket, playing the way he does. Uh, he's on the losing side, but again, what a, what a phenomenal knock. Yeah, almost no one does it like him. England have got one or two pretenders. He could do well at seven for England. He, he could, yeah, <laughs> if, if he fancies it. Uh, right, Rishabh Pant. I'm, I'm rarely, rarely right, but I did say a couple of years ago that if he's if he wants to occupy legend status in the game, then he has to do it at a test match level because there are many minor geniuses in Indian white ball cricket uh, and some of them don't even play for India. Uh, the point of difference with him is what we're seeing now in 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 the five-day stuff. And uh, he he has found that elixir, that perfect balance between wildness and responsibility. And although... The, the odd occasion when it doesn't work, you feel like 
1.3 billion people are coming down on his shoulders. It works so often now. It's worked in big moments in big games. And he got them out of a hole on day one because, you know, England were all over them like cheap. Some of the shots on that day were just absolute. The one where he ended up kind of, he ended up on the floor like three different times, didn't he? Yeah, my mate said, who who falls over more, Rishabh Pant or Bob Mortimer in in, in Mortimer and Whitehouse gone fishing? But anyway, he, he, um, my favourite shot that he plays is his own shot that no one's ever done before, although Butler does a version of it. It's when you don't move your feet at all. When you stand in your stance without a trigger, without and you literally do not move at all apart from your hands. And although it's ridiculous and it looks like a piss take, again, there is logic behind it because you have that, that base, that base that's already there. And then you can just work, work these, these marvellous hands around. Uh, he's, he's a joy and he's also something that the test game has to cherish again. You know, it, the, the rules might be being rewritten, but... He's still doing his best work. Odd, actually, oddly, he's doing his best work in Test yeah, well, cricket. His, his white ball record is actually for India not great. That's yeah. why I was going to say the Butler comparison is interesting because you know there are clearly similarities in in their sort of white ball dominance and the aggression they play with. But unlike Butler, Pant seems to be more comfortable doing it in the longer format than the shorter format. Certainly at international level, I'm not. I, I don't can't really explain why that is, and I think. At the end of his career, I think he will have a phenomenal white ball record. Maybe it's actually just having, even though he doesn't necessarily rein himself in, especially it's having that extra time in test cricket allows him to calm down a little bit. Whereas in one day cricket, it is a little bit all hell for leather. But yeah, he's, he's clearly going to be a wonderful player across all the formats. Um, Hugh writes in to say, has this summer been the vindication that Broad needed given the strength of his rhetoric on being dropped? I guess it's all smiles and rainbows at the moment. But he's averaging over 35 this summer, going at more than three and over. He's had spells when he's been excellent and looked threatening, but more often than not, he's looked innocuous. How much would he be playing if Robinson, Wood, Wokes, Mahmood, etc. were all fit? Has Potts now moved ahead of him in the pecking order too? Joe? Uh, I would say yes to that final question. I think Potts has been brilliant this summer. I think if you, if you, you, know, if you had a World Test Championship final tomorrow and you had to pick your team uh, based on who's available at the moment, I think Potts would be ahead of ahead of Broad. Uh, I think Broad's bold, from what I've seen, I think Broad's bold better than those stats. I do agree that at times he's looked innocuous, but I think he's also been a bit unlucky at times. I can think of at least a couple of catches that have gone down off his bowling as well. But it's no great surprise, really. I think he might not admit it, but he he, he is a fading force. It would be bizarre, freakish in the Anderson way if, if he wasn't. Um, and I think he should have a bit part role for England over the next maybe 12 months before he calls it a day. And I think he's still useful. I don't think it has to be this constant, is Broad finished? Is this the end for Broad? I think he should just be one of England's stock stock of seamers and they use him where appropriate. And I think hopefully this series, and I think this is kind of the point that the email is getting at, maybe is based on what we've seen this summer, it's hard for him to come out so strongly in future and say, I have to be in this side. I'm one of the best teams in the country or in the best two teams in the country because he's not really. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a role to play. So hopefully he can be at peace with that as well and, and, and not kind of slamming. Well, no one can slam England in the press at the moment. You can't slam them when they're winning, can you? That's 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 another key difference. England haven't had that many seam options. Everyone's been injured. It'd be quite interesting to see what happens when 
if and when some seamers are back for the South Africa series. I know there's not much Red Bull cricket for them to prove their fitness, but see what, how England go about that because there are lots of very good players who haven't been playing much Red Bull cricket this summer. Yeah, none of these seamers are, are racing back to fitness, though, are they? Most of them are quite long-term problems. I, I don't see England's seam attack changing a huge amount for the rest of the summer, really. I think Broad was excellent at Leeds in the first innings and visibly tired in the second uh, and his stats reflect that disparity um, across across the last couple of years, really. You know, his, his average since the start of last year, I think, is, is you know, into the early 30s. And, and yeah, it, it, Joe's right. You know, he's not the force he, he, wants, he once was. But he is, he is a number of things still to this setup. He is, he's, his vibes, he's, there's, there's a kind of charisma there there's a lot of hubris around Stuart Broad of course Night Watchman in Waiting yeah, yeah. brilliant <laughs> I mean isn't he changed his his Instagram or whatever you call it profile to sort of Nighthawk for English cricket and England cricket and all that and, and and somebody like him around around the traps is probably a good thing probably a positive thing the kind of thing that Stokes is going to want uh, basically for the next they've got three more test matches this summer and then they go to, to Pakistan I'm not sure if Broad will be required in Pakistan uh, and then, and then there's a then there's a pause for a bit. So, uh, whisper it. I could see that this could be his last full summer in an England kit. But if it is, and they win this, they win the series against South Africa. Then, then what a what a glorious way to to say thanks for thanks for the memories anyway. And look, you know, if he's fit and firing next year, then then fine, we roll on. But yeah, I think a, a slow. A slow parting of the ways is probably the way that it's going to play out with him. Um, but far better to do it positively than than with that sort of sense of, you know, business unfulfilled as it was earlier in the year. Mm. Um, moving on, since we recorded the last podcast, we've had the women's test match at Taunton. I was there for all four days. It ended in a draw. Uh, there was brilliant cricket when they got on the park. There was a lot of rain, and it was only a four-day Test match, so there wasn't that many. There weren't that many opportunities for them to to win back that time. Um, Marazan Cap, Nat Siver, and Alice Davidson Richards all scored superb hundreds, all from varying degrees of tricky positions. Um, so the England had four debutants, and I thought the Davidson Richards hundred was really positive and kind of shows that even though there are some frustrating elements of how women's cricket is still being treated and they're not being a fifth day for example that there are strides being made david richards actually wasn't centrally contracted she was on a rookie contract for a couple of years and she did a bit of work as a personal trainer so we spoke to her for for a feature we've got in the upcoming magazine which was seven emerging women's cricketers about the journey they've had and, and kind of what comes next and she's obviously a bit older than the rest at 28 but i think that's even more interesting in some ways because she's straddled the two eras of non-professional and, and professional. And she, so she's the oldest England uh, women's test debutant in 20 years. So so with, without the professional contracts that came in last year, you do wonder, would, would there have been a route for her to get back into the game to the level that she's now at? And also just like how at ease she was in that level, the, the, the setup beneath the test team and the just full England setup is producing players who are ready for international cricket straight away. And also, Izzy Wong, we've talked about on the show quite a lot. I, I was so pleased to see her charging in under the lights. Um, she but she, was, re- she really let it go, didn't she? Properly, Second or third night, maybe? Third, third, third evening. evening. So yeah. it felt a lot like the England-Sri Lanka men's test at Cardiff uh, when Sri Lanka just completely collapsed. 
um, in a game that was rain affected. It felt like England could have done that. And, and the game, it felt completely different when one was bowling. I think she is, she is definitely the quickest bowler England have, but not by loads. But she has the attitude of someone who's actually quicker than she is, if that yeah, makes sense. So absolutely. She properly tries and to knock people over. That comes across when you speak to her as well. Like she's she's super bright, really funny, interesting person to speak to. I interviewed her after her debut. Um, and she said, actually, there's a really nice moment. So before she came back on for that late spell, her, her mum had been watching, I guess, at home and thought they weren't going to get back on the pitch. So they'd gone down to Izzy's local cricket club and just happened to be there as play resumed and Izzy's on the TV bowling that spell and she's Izzy's mum's standing watching it with the coach who first taught Izzy cricket, age six. Uh, so they sat there and watched, watched this spell together, which is obviously a really, uh, really lovely moment. She's definitely going places um, and she's going to be, I think, a real figurehead for English women's cricket because not just because of how talented she is on the pitch, but she also speaks so well off it. Um, she was really engaging about women's sport in general and how much she's enjoying that, being part of it, but also watching it as a fan. She's looking forward to the Euros this summer. She told me that at the Commonwealth Games this summer, there's more medals available for women than men for the first time ever as well. So she's she's very clued up. She knows her stuff and she's she's really something to be, um, to che- to be cherished in women's cricket. And it'd be great if she can step up and, and you know take over from Brunt and Shrubsall as England need her to, really. Yeah, absolutely. I thought Lauren Bell was was really good as well. And her, her spell on the, on the first day was, was really impressive. Um, she obviously releases the ball from, from eight feet high or whatever. Uh, and, but she's another one who's really impressive off the field as well. So she did her, uh, I spoke to her like the day before the test match or two days before the test match. And she did her dissertation while she was on tour with England over the winter. And her dissertation was on the way in which women, uh, professional female athletes are treated differently on social media to, to to their male counterparts. So again, somebody else who's like hyper aware of kind of the context of women's sport and the, and the progress it's making and, and and still the progress that needs to be done around it. Whilst you were there, Yaz, the, there were some great things in the match, but the overriding sense was another, why haven't we got a fifth day? Why is this, why has this been stunted effectively? What, what was the mood at the ground at the time amongst the press and also the players? Well, I, I felt really sorry for Heather Knight at the end of the game because every time she plays a test match, she has to answer the same questions and she's on the record of, you know, voicing her frustration that there's not a fifth day. Um, and I get the sense that it's, it's frustrating for the players to every time they play test matches, they almost have to justify why they should be playing test matches. Um, and I think the, the, the four-day stuff, I think, is, like a, is an ICC directive. But I think there are some things that the ECB should be doing more as well to um, give women's test cricket the best chance of succeeding. So, for example, uh, England haven't played a women's test match at a men's test ground for over 20 years now. Uh, the test was scheduled Monday to Thursday. How often? I don't know the last time the men have done had a test match without a weekend I can't day. Can't remember a Monday start. Ever. Exactly, exactly. Um, so to give it the best chance, of succeed, they didn't give it the best chance of succeeding at all. The the crowds on day three and four. I'm, yeah, sure, the rain played a part, but they were they were awful. And the location uh, in, a, in a smallish town city uh, in the middle of the week doesn't help it at all. Um, so, yeah, I think I think a lot of frustration. But I think also, I think there are strides being made as well. Like I think the Duke's ball made a, quite a big difference. The, the, the cricket was, was, was much better. The bowlers were kind of always in it. There weren't any periods where you felt that the, the cricket was a bit dead. You've always felt it was a good 
battle between bat and ball throughout. Um, batters could score freely, but also the bowlers were always in it. So I think it was, it was, it was good cricket when it, they got is on Is it the pitch. 90 overs a day? More than that. It's more yeah, than that. Yeah. So it should work out as a four and a half day cricket match. Basically, yeah. But it, it, when, as soon as you get rain, that's it. Basically, sure, yeah. sure. So I, in, uh, Raph Nicholson's written a good column on, on the match in general, but specifically the kind of uh, five day test match issue. Uh, you might be aware of this already, but she said that the ICC allow you to schedule it over five days, but you can only have four days of cricket. So you can only use that fifth day if one whole day is wiped out. So in effect, it's a reserve day. So th- there is also there's sort of room in the scheduling already. And I, I understand that they might the ICC might be wary of countries not wanting to lose money by hosting tests, which, which, which do lose money. But surely there should be a, a kind of a clause or an amendment that allows boards to negotiate a fifth day if they so wish to do so. There's no World Test Championship in women's cricket, so it, you wouldn't say it's unequal to other test matches. It does, Just let the boards decide for themselves, surely. And, and you know, if the, if the boards then don't do it, then we can criticise them for it. But at the moment, it's you can't even... You can't even really criticise the people that you want to because we don't know where it exactly comes from. And hundred percent, hundred percent, and also for women's test cricket to improve in like a product, they need to just play more. South Africa that was their first test match in eight years. Uh, I think bar like maybe two of their players, they were all debut uh, making their debuts, and the captain Sune Lu said at the end of the test match that she, she thought she, I think she did do a good job as captain. But said it's a hard thing to do when you've literally not captained a side in that format before and you don't play much of it. So I think they just need to do as much as possible to, I mean, I think the, the big three seem to be playing slightly more test cricket than they used to. Um, but I think they need to do as much as possible. I mean, New Zealand haven't played a test match in, in nearly 20 years. Some good teams haven't played test cricket for a while. So, so that news came through yesterday that New Zealand's women are yeah. getting equal pay to, to the men, same match fees mm. for domestic and international Is games. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Announced yesterday. Well, listen in then, ECB. <laughs> um, just on the, the four or five day thing, uh, and, you know, in, in a sense of, sense of equality and other reasons, play five days, especially in England where you get crowds and it's, it's a money maker rather than a money loss. But from a strategic point of view, I'm just trying to figure it out in my head. And if there has been a kind of a sort of a fearfulness in women's test cricket before at, at certain moments, in, in not too long ago either. If you think about the game at Canterbury, for example, when I think England played out something like 35 maidens in a day and I was actually there at the time. Uh, there's there's been an assumption that this is how you have to play test cricket and it's resulted in in a lot of tricky watches historically but the game has changed very quickly and in a very short space of time and it's changed quite dramatically and now there is as we saw in the Canberra test match there is a there is a clear desire to a produce a pitch where you can get a bit of life out of it and b produce a show produce a game dangle the carrot in the fourth innings and go for it and only shut up shot right at the death as England did. And I think while it's alarming to look at those numbers of the the preponderance of draws over the last 15, 20 years, I don't see that moving forward particularly because I just think there's just been such a dramatic change in, in the approach. And so while five days safeguards that, it also possibly eliminate or weakens that sense of wanting to move the game along it's the argument for four-day test matches whether you're a man or a woman 
it's the argument for it, but it's also obviously an argument against it that if you do have a bit of rain, then 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 you lose too much out of that game. But I can understand why, considering the financial constraints around the world as well, four day cricket is the way four day cricket with hundred hundred overs per day is the way that they've they've positioned Test match cricket for, yeah. for for women so far. I can understand it in the same way that they've done that with with lower tier men's men's full member sides as well playing test match cricket. I can understand the logic of it. I don't know if I agree with it, but I can understand the logic yeah. of it from a strategic perspective. Yeah, I mean, what Joe said, they just should definitely have the option for a fifth day sure. when it rains. Sure, sure, sure. But what you said earlier, Heather Knight basically said exactly that. When you don't play that much test cricket, your their instinct was to play quite conservative cricket. But it's no longer the case. But now they've played more, they've realised that actually you can try things that are more positive, more attacking, and, you know, you actually can do that and, and, and it yeah. works. Yeah. And only now, with England having played slightly more test cricket in the last two years than they had done in the previous two or three years they do have the confidence to do that and Heather Knight now has captained a few women's test matches as well so yeah and we saw it with India last year as well when the opener Verna came out to mm. bat and it was slapping it all over the place and and now that will be the model and we will see a lot more results whether it's played over four four provided it doesn't rain too much whether it's played over four days or four and a half or five, you'll see a lot more results, oh, full stop. That, that game would 100% have had a result if you yeah. had a full day yeah. of cricket left. And also, even though England were on top, the way Cap was, go, was going in the second innings and the way she went in the first innings. What a like, not. South, South, Africa, South Africa could easily have won that test no, match. It was nicely, it was nicely poised. Yeah. yeah, really was. Um, before we move on, let's hear what Gulliver Sports Travels have in store for cricket fans this winter. We are joined by... Henry from Gulliver Sports Travels. In a nutshell, Henry, what is Gulliver Sports Travel? So Gulliver Sports Travel is a sort of leading, originally we're leading uh, high street agencies. We started in 1972 um, and we specialise in taking people away uh, to watch sporting events all over the globe. So in particular, cricket, rugby and Formula One are our sort of three main key pillars of sports that we, that we follow globally. So what's the history between Gulliver's and cricket? What events do you, do you generally go so to? So as I mentioned, we've been going for 50 years now. So we're very proud to that Gulliver's Sports Travel have hit their 50-year birthday. Um, but we've been following England all over the globe um, for, for almost since day dot. Um, we're providing high-quality, unforgettable touring experiences to the likes of Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, West Indies, Sri Lanka, India, so if you name a, a test destination, we've been there. Um, currently, we've got groups in uh, Holland for the uh, ODI series out there, um, and, and also looking forward to the T20 World Cup in Australia in a few months' time. Mm, I'm, I'm jealous of anyone out on that Holland tour at the moment. Um, what makes you guys stand out from other tour operators? Not only the uh, not only the relationships we have with our with our customers, um, you know we're we're very close. We like to we're very proud of the fact that we have a have a lot of people who who book with us for for every trip, um, but also the partnerships we and the friendships we've made across the world. So you know we 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 have a sort of family across the uh, across the whole world. With so for example, we go to similar um, cricket clubs in South Africa. We try and set up games with other with other um in other countries with clubs as well so we try and visit different clubs 
um, with various suppliers and also various cricket boards as well. So, you know, we've got such an established um, relationship across the globe from everything from flight companies to transfer companies to the, to, I suppose, to the, um, the real core, the individual, the cricket clubs as well, which makes it really special. Um, we know the destination so well. Um, so whether it's look, you're looking for a sort of week away or whether it's a month away with all the bells and whistles and you, and you want to do something a bit different and something unique and special to you, you know, we've got unrivaled touring experience um, across, the, across the world. Mm. I mean, one of the biggest things of the cricketing calendar this year is the T20 World Cup in Australia. It didn't go too well for England last time they were out in Australia, but hopefully they've got better chances of seeding there in the T20 World Cup. What kind of fan expect when going on tour to Australia with Gullivers? So we've, we've teamed up with a number of uh, parties in Australia with various tourism boards to try and create the best package and order and offer as much uh, added value as we can to the customers. So we're an official ICC uh, men's T20 World Cup uh, travel provider. Um, so all the tickets are 100% guaranteed and also what comes with that is the protection as well um, for when, when people go. Obviously, there's still disruptions going on at the moment and we don't really know you know uh, what's look what uh, the world looks like in in sort of two to three months time uh, with, with the whole COVID, dare I mention it, thing still going on. Yeah, so all packages include guaranteed match tickets, the hotel accommodation uh, with the option to add internal flights and obviously the international flights plus much more. We also assign a, a tour manager to you so we have someone on hand 24 hours a day who will be there to make sure that the accommodation and the, all the match transfers, um, the transfers between, you know, depending if you what, what you're doing, so if you're going to um, Melbourne or, or Perth, you know, the, the tour managers will be there on hand to assist you to make sure that everything runs as smoothly as possible. Um, we also put on things like welcome drinks so you get to know the group and, and mingle with like-minded fans. Um, quite often we'll bring in special guests and ex-players uh, as well to meet the group as well as a, a final tour dinner as well at the end at the end to uh, to really leave the tour with a bang and uh, have hopefully having had an unforgettable experience. Mm, nice. And then if people listen to this and they, they want to find out more, they want to book, what, what should they do? Um, and also, is there an option as well to, to pay in, in instalments, I guess, or not just pay? Yeah, that? absolutely. So best thing to do is, is probably head to our website, which is www.gullivers.travel.co.uk. Uh, and, and from there, you can see all the packages and the inclusions, and that will give you a real insight in terms of what the packages are. We've also got a sales team on hand, um, so feel free to, to give those guys a call and they're, they're all trained up and they know the, the ins and outs and have travelled to Australia many a time so they can give really good uh, examples and, and understand exactly what you're after and they'll be able to advise there. Um, and we've also got sort of various social media handles as well, uh, the likes of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then on your point about um, sort of payments, obviously, especially with Australia, it's fairly fairly expensive to fly over there. So we do offer um, various different payment schedules. So, for example, you can pay 50% up front or you can, if you want to knock it off bit by bit, you have a full login uh, and an interactive account where you can go and log on and you can pay bit by bit. Um, we have certain deadlines, but as long as the payments are hit by those deadlines, how you do it is completely up to you. Fantastic. Thanks for, a lot for your time, Henry. Um, listeners, if, if you like what you've heard, we'll slap the link to their website in our description. Joe, what's your moment of the week? Um, so my moment of the week comes from the Blast, which obviously we've got the quarterfinals this week. Um, 
there's been quite a lot written about the blast in the last few days, which we'll, which we'll come on to. But the, the specific thing that jumped out for me was was the what was meant to be a kind of do or die clash between Leicestershire and Yorkshire at Grace Road. Um, I think all the other positions for the quarterfinals have been decided. So this was the last remaining one. Leicestershire needed to beat Yorkshire to get to the quarterfinals. All perfectly set. Um, I, th- I think it might have been a sellout crowd or certainly they'd, they'd got a big crowd ready to come in. And then that morning, an uh, announcement came through that Leicestershire had been penalised for two um, indiscretions during their win against Northamptonshire. A one-run win to keep their tournament alive. Um, which would mean effectively that the Yorkshire game was pointless, uh, a dead rubber. Um, the two penalties were in that Northampton game where Aaron Lilly apparently kind of uh, having a go at Jimmy Neesham after he'd been run out, which sounds entirely uh, avoidable. Uh, the other one was Naveen Hack bowling two uh, full tosses over waist height and therefore be taken out of the attack. The context is that Leicestershire have had a lot of penalties over the last or prior to this year, uh, and we're on a final warning. So in a sense, you know, it was all clear. They knew what would happen if they broke those rules again. The issue for me is really the the Naveen one, that I just don't think uh, full tosses over waist height should be in the same category as shouting at someone on the pitch or shouting at an umpire or swearing at an umpire, especially in T20 when we know these bowlers are trying to bowl back of the hand, slower, of the hand yeah. slower balls, often with a greasy, dewy ball, I just I find that bonkers, and and you know the panel perhaps just has to go by the letter of the law. Maybe it's the law that leads looking at rather than the decision itself. Uh, I just feel really sorry for Leicestershire, who they're bottom of Division Two, haven't won a game all year. They clearly put a lot of energy into T Twenty. They spend what's probably quite a big portion of their budget getting some decent overseas players over, like Naveen, uh, and they've made a big effort to get more fans in for T20. They slashed their prices very early in the tournament, recognising the environment that we're living in now and got good crowds as a result. And then they've been kind of punched in the mouth, really. Um, You know, rules are rules. I understand they have to be stuck to, but there is a bit of a sense here that... Wouldn't it happen to a bigger one? Well, Uh, I I don't know. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, it was basically. It feels like... um, it is very different in lots of ways, but the Durham situation a few years ago and the way they got the book thrown at them, um, whereas, you know, the Yorkshire thing rumbles on, they still haven't actually received a kind of formal punishment as a team uh, because the rules aren't so clearly in, in place for, for racism, but they are quite clearly in place for a couple of flat ones. Yeah. You, so see it, you see it differently, yes, do you? Yeah, slightly. So I, I completely agree with the Beamers. I don't understand why you get punished for that. But they would have been punished without the Naveen Beamers anyway because they were one infringement away from the points deduction. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, So there's right. only one away. And also, um, they they were on that final warning because they had six on-field infringements in the space of 12 months, which is a lot. And also, part of the punishment... The suspended penalty, which was two points in the blast, if it's in the blast, was that they came very, very close to getting these punishments in 2015 and 2017. So that was taken into account. And it's not as if teams get punished for this that often. They, they, Their behaviour has clearly just been worse than other teams. But improved um, this year. That, that's what they yeah. claimed in mitigation. Uh, the other thing, Leicestershire asked if their points deduction could be pushed back to, or pushed forward, sorry, to next summer. I, I, maybe there's not um, 
maybe that's not what the rules suggest, but that, that would yeah. have seemed quite a reasonable way. You still get, you still lose the points eventually. Yeah. That would have seemed a fairer way of going about it for me. Yeah. I don't think Yorkshire could have had too many complaints if that had been the case. And then obviously the, the final bit, Leicestershire went and thumped, thumped Yorkshire <laughs> by 60 runs, which I guess only added to that sense of what might have been really. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not slamming the ECB here. There are rules in place, but it did feel like a team that could do with a break uh, ended up being given a kick in the teeth instead. Um, and then just on the blast in general, you were going to talk about, and Andrew Miller's written a piece in the upcoming Wisden Cricket Monthly about this, about the, the lack of love it's getting from the ECB, basically. Yeah, and David Ops has written a really kind of impassioned piece on ESPN Crick Info about this too. Yeah, it's just, so we've got to the quarterfinals and actually, I remember when you asked us for our predictions at the start of the tournament, you said, having asked us, it's basically pointless because we don't know what the sides will look like come the quarterfinals. And that's what's happened now that England have got white ball matches. So the a lot of the counties that have got through have been massively depleted. Uh, Surrey here have, have lost Chris Jordan, their captain, and a handful of other players, Yorkshire too. Um, and, you know, this should be building to a crescendo. And actually, it just ends with a kind of limp finish. And there are ways around this. The ECB has a very difficult job in setting up a schedule, largely because it's added a fourth competition to its own schedule. Um, and the result is that, as county fans feared, the blast is very much the last thing to consider. And it is indicative of the way that things are going. And you know, there, was, there are those fears that the blast in time will just be ushered to one side. And it does feel step by step that we're, we're getting to that point, which a lot of the players... Um, would be very sad about a lot of fans will be furious about understandably especially when they were promised this wasn't what was going to happen and it, it does feel like we're edging closer to that sort of by the day really um, and that that's a real shame because it's still a great tournament it has its problems eight encounters is a lot we know um, but if you're going to have it you've got to back it and it feels like there, it does feel a little bit like it's kind of being set up to fail at the moment and also in terms of um, this is a tournament that means so much to the players, they take it extraordinarily seriously. It's, it's for a lot of players the, the pinnacle of their summers. It does lose its integrity a little bit if immensely. You, know, you, you lose 10 players for a quarterfinal. It, it, immensely. And yeah, it, it, it demeans the tournament through no fault of, of the, the teams that are involved. Mm. Uh, we're recording obviously at the Oval. Big game tonight, Surrey-Yorkshire, and it's, a, and it's a twos game. And there'll be a full house in. And they've never faced each other in the tournament ever. And it will be tinged by that fact. And just, just personally, for me, a quarterfinal in the blast is far bigger than a T20 game against India. Yeah. Not just from a, a punter's perspective, but from a player's perspective as well. It must be. And TV it, spectacle, I think, as well. Yeah. So it's, I'm from yeah, a punter's yeah, yeah. perspective. There'll be more people tuning in to see, to see a full a team of superstars, York, Yorkshire Surrey, then there would another here today, gone tomorrow, who gives a toss T20 game, which is nothing more than a cash cow. Nothing more or less than that. Instantly forgettable. Ravi Shastri coached India and said this a few weeks ago. He said, I don't remember any T20 game, apart from in a big tournament, of which I was the steward for. He just doesn't remember. Nor do I, nor does anybody. It's purely an exhibition game. These are not exhibition games. These are crucial to the future of these individual counties and crucial to the, to the membership and to the, the, the fans who are investing so much time in, into it. You play 14 games to get to this point 
and then you get your team ripped apart because you need a rest day because you you got to play for England in a couple of days. It's a load of bollocks. It's absolute bollocks. This is, and it's also clearly uh, representative of a wider issue with the domestic game getting squeezed. And as Andrew Miller points out in his column, he says there's a three-way reduction of status of the only formats that matter at global level. And you know, and we know why this is. It's because the hundred takes centre stage, and there is they bet so much on it, it needs to come off. But I think if the ECB want want to be canny and, and keep the people on the side or try and pull back some of the, play, the the fans that they've lost, then it's not that difficult to make sure that the quarterfinals of the blast are played at a time when they're actually, they can, they can be fitting of the occasion they're meant to be. But personally, I don't mind so much that it's squeezed into this crazy week where you literally finish a test match and then you've got four games with an, the odd England game sprinkled around that. I don't mind that because it is so crazy at the moment. But what does piss me off is that England will, will they'll, they'll name a squad, even though everybody's constantly moving around in English cricket, they'll name a squad, that'll be your squad, that's stuck now. And even if your club gets through to a quarterfinal, and even if your quarterfinal is, is two or three days before some T20 game that, that you haven't been playing for England for, there's still no flexibility in there. Just make it a bit more flexible. Just, just name a squad of 18, or name a squad of 14 with four reserves. And if your main squad needs a certain number of players to be taken out for one game, then you bring in your reserves. Just show a bit more flexibility, obviously, and then it will just raise the standard completely and make more people interested in the thing. Absolutely. And now on, on to those exhibition games, England have announced squads for the ODI series and T20I series against India. Interesting names in there. Harry Brooks in both of them. Craig Overton's in the ODI squad, which I was slightly surprised by, and Matt Parkinson's in there as well. Uh, Brian with, Cast got a call up. In yeah, the ODIs. he's in there as well. Bowl up. Um, and in the T20I squad, uh, Richard Gleeson, the 34-year-old Lancashire Quick, is in there for the first time, uh, rewarded for a fine season just, in the blast. Just on Gleeson, and this is a nod to Matt Roller at ESPN Cricket because I didn't really know this, but I was writing up for the magazine yesterday. Amazing story, really, Gleeson. All kinds of terrible injuries. He, he, was, he was playing club cricket until he was 27 for Blackpool. Um, just got a trial at North Ants, playing a bit of minor counties for Cumberland as well. Got a trial at North Ants, managed to get into the setup. Got a big transfer, obviously, to Lancashire. But he's had all kinds of injury problems. He's had metals, metal pins put in his back. Even as late as December last year, he wondered if he was ever going to play professional cricket again because his his body was being held together, you know, with with string and chewing gum. And he had this operation which was touch and go, and it and it and it's it's fused his back together again. And he's come out and he's taken 20-plus wickets in the blast this year for Lancashire bowling. Heavy-duty, muscular, block-hole deliveries. A lot of clean bowls in that, in that number. Uh, and so it's a really nice story and quite an unusual story. Increasingly rare, almost vanishingly rare story that, you know, you, you go around the backwaters and then you end up getting an, an England cap at some point in your 30s. So it's a nice story, that one. And fully deserved as well. Um, England also announced a Lions white ball squad for 250 over games against South Africa. Um, some very interesting names this one. So it's going to be captained by Tom Abel. You've got the 17-year-old leggy from Leicester, Rahan Ahmed in there, who's had a brilliant blast season. Tom Banton, Sam Cook, Ben Duckett, Steve Eskenazi, Sam Hain, Adam Hose, Benny Howell, Jake Lintett, David Payne, George Scrimshaw and Will Smead, who's still not played a 50-over game professionally. Um, so lots of exciting games there. The second game will have list day status. Um, to finish the show, Joe, there's a raffle 
for a very good cause that's close to us. Do you want to talk about that briefly? Uh, yeah, so this is a raffle um, which has been set up by uh, a guy called Joel Lammy, who's actually uh, written some questions into the podcast previously. But we know him from doing work experience with uh, with Wisdom a while ago. Um, he himself has suffered from a chronic pain condition, which has kind of restricted his life quite a bit. Um, but he's doing some really positive work to try and make life a bit easier for for disabled people. There's a charity called Changing Places, which is um, aiming to build toilets that go beyond ordinary disabled toilets. Um, they are bigger and include items such as hoist and changing bench. Without them, many disabled adults and families with a young person who has additional needs feel unable to visit uh, the city centre. This is specifically based in Peterborough. Um, so uh, between us, we've set up a raffle. So it's just £5 to enter the raffle. And the winner will get two tickets to day three of the Oval Test between England and South Africa uh, later this summer. And the second prize is a bottle of the very delicious rye whiskey done by Wisden and a gift pack of the beer. So that's only £5. So the worst that can happen is you give £5 to a very good cause. The best that you could get end up getting test tickets worth, I don't know, upwards of 200 quid and a little bit probably at the Oval. Um, and awesome wisdom whiskey uh, which is say thanks to Surrey and John Surtees in particular providing those those tickets for the test match and uh, and the wisdom.com team for the for the whiskey um, the best that I've got a long URL here I think the best way to find how to donate is probably a, a link w- with the podcast Yaz will sort that uh, and also we'll, we've stuck it on Twitter as well so you can find the full details there but um, all donations uh, would be very welcome and we'll be announcing the winner of the raffle at the end of July. Awesome. Sounds great. And yeah, please do get involved. That's all we have time for today. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. We'll be back next week. Podcast Network.